Welcome to our 15th episode of Two Tankers and a Cat. We are your hosts. I'm Charlie. And this is Russell. And Lightning is basically on the armchair of, the ca- of my chair, and she is just all over me today. I should have, you know, shouldn't have tried that catnip. Yeah, that probably was the problem. Hey, um, we had a lady out of Oregon... Uh, her name's Sherry Painter, I think her name is, and she was talking about on our uh, one of our other episodes that Lightning had been doing a massage on the back, uh, on my back, and we couldn't figure out what she was doing. Come to find out, that is a, a thing called kneading, and kittens do it to the mother um, when they're, uh, you know, having breakfast or whatever, they're getting milk. They will actually do that paw thing, uh, a kneading motion with their front paws to help the mom relax and release milk. And it's a comfort thing for the kitten also. So that's why Lightning, when she's coming up to us and she's kneading on us, she's actually trying to comfort us. And it's really comforting for her. Yeah, she's definitely into kneading. I mean... Out of all the cats that I've had throughout my life, I mean, she's she's probably the most needy that <laughs> I've come across. <laughs> <laughs> a needy cat. Yeah. yeah, I think I know a couple of ex-wives like that. Oh, never mind. <laughs> oh, now I'm going to get in trouble. Oh, yep, you're done. Oh, man. Oh, let's do some announcements. Yeah. I'm going to start off by uh, saying... We're really excited to announce our new Two Tankers and a Cat Patreon page. I know we've been talking about this for quite some time, but hey, it is finally here. If you haven't listened to to the short little announcement we posted on Podbean just a few days ago, uh, please go out there, download that, give it a listen, and then after you listen to it, head on over to our new Patreon page, and you can find that at www dot patreon dot com slash two tankers and cat uh patreon is spelled p a t r e o n dot com and it's backslash two tankers and cat and that will all be linked on our website at www.twotankersandcat.com can we throw that it'll be on our facebook yeah it'll be on facebook and all that stuff we'll We'll make sure you can get to our new Patreon page. Excellent. Our very first post on Patreon is a video of an M4 Sherman medium tank that's on static display in Lamar, Missouri. Um, Not too far from where we live here. And what makes this video so special is that the entire video was recorded with um, my, Russell's, uh, DJI Mavic Pro drone. Now, people, I've had a chance to see this drone footage, and if you've if you're familiar with drone footage, Russell was right next and just flying over it. It's amazing, definitely worth the small price that you have to be to pay to see it. Yeah, yeah. It, it came I, out. I've really enjoyed playing with my drone. It's 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 pretty neat. It's it's another whole vantage point of different things that, that you can get with flying a drone over it. And then the detail you'll see with the hatches and everything on the M4 Sherman and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, it, it's, it's pretty good. 
And people, we uh, are going to go out and do a lot more with our uh, drones. Uh, we have an M60 that we're going to do uh, just to see the, I guess, bird's eye view. I guess that'd be the best way to explain it. Yeah. Of looking down at the tank and seeing the stuff that you would never see unless you were like right above it. It, it really does change. And then Russell does a good job of getting it right down, looking right down to the gun barrel. <laughs> Those are always pretty good. You're like, wow, I'm looking right down the barrel of that thing. Um, we're also, uh, like I said, we're going to do the M60. And then we got uh, a uh, Purple Heart Park in Adrian, Missouri. We're going to go up and see. And we got a couple others. Oh, and uh, my daughter, Brittany. Uh, Russ right now is editing a video for that. Uh, she went to Brussels. And went to the National Museum up there and, and did uh, a video for us uh, while she's over there. Uh, she gets to fly all over the world. So she's going to do special Patreon videos and show us stuff that you would never, never get to see. Some people never get to see unless they see it on our Patreon. Yes, very true. Very true. Pretty much. On our Patreon, you'll have many more special podcasts. We'll put out little podcasts here and there, and we're already working on a couple of those now. And a lot of that will be museums that Charlie and I have already been to. We'll kind of sit around and talk about what they have there tank-wise that we've seen at the museums. And those will be also uploaded to our Patreon page throughout each month. Um, so we'll have a, we've already got a lot of content um, that we can talk about with the museums and talk about what it takes to get into the museums and what they have once you get there. So Especially the big uh, museum down in Oklahoma City. Yeah, yeah. We keep talking about this, and if you haven't seen it, you just wouldn't believe. They have, uh, I hate to say war trophies, but uh, when they went into the Eagle's Nest, they actually went into Hitler's um, uh, private apartment and took the mirror out of his bathroom. And no one was allowed to use that bathroom. And one of the weirdest feelings that you'll ever have is to look in the mirror that that man looked into. I, it just—it's an eerie feeling. I mean, you know what I'm talking about, Russell. Oh yeah, it gives you the chills and the goosebumps just just looking into it. Yes. But anyway, um, make sure you do get to our Patreon page. Help us out with a little support and listen to the special small podcast that we'll put out um, before you hear this episode. And it explains to you what the different tiers are and what you get with those tiers in Patreon. Hey, we've gotten a great response on the M4 series that we did. I was expecting to get a lot of hate mail, but we also got a pretty good response on the M4 and why it was the second best on the Eastern Front. But people want to know, and everybody keeps messaging me, especially our uh, Soviet tanker friends, uh, they want to know what the best tank on the Eastern Front. Uh, we're going to get some hate mail on this, though. People are going to go T-34, and I'm like, no, it's not the T-34. Well, here it is. Uh and uh, Russ, get ready for some more hate mail, buddy. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm still waiting, to be honest with you. I don't know if all the hate mail is going to you or 
what's going on, but yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I've been riding pretty good. So yeah, yeah, it's mostly directed towards me. Oh, thanks. Well, good. <laughs> um, so people, you want to know what the best tank of the Eastern Front was? Well, we'll just go our, over our first key point. We're going to be talking about the IS-2, also known as the JS-2. Uh, and uh, we're also going to do a second point on the Battle of Berlin. So I know Russ is uh, a big fan of the IS-2. So Russ, uh, what is the IS tanks? The Joseph Stalin tank was a series of heavy tanks developed as a successor to the KV series by the Soviet Union during World War II. The IS acronym is the angelicized initialism of Joseph Stalin. The heavy tanks were designed with thick armor to counter German 88mm guns and carried a main gun capable of defeating Tiger and Panther tanks. They were mainly designed as breakthrough tanks firing a heavy high-explosive shell that was useful against entrenchments and bunkers. The IS-2 went into service in April 1944 and was used as a spearhead by the Red Army in the final stage of the Battle of Berlin. Wow. So the famed 88 millimeter uh, would bounce off the front of uh, IS-2. And, you know, the Soviets finally said, hey, we're sick of this, uh, you know, 88 killing everything that we have, T-34s, the KVs. We're going to make a tank that will bounce it from the front and then we're like uh okay let's let's do that so uh wow so that is one way to get the number one spot on the eastern front everybody says why that's not the best tank if it'll bounce an 88 it puts it pretty close to number one don't you think pretty close i agree i'll have to agree with you there uh russ give us some stats on the is2 Yes, the IS-2 was designed by Zosef Koten and Nikolai Dukov. It was designed in 1943 and manufactured by the Kirov factory. The unit cost of an IS-2 model 1944 was about 264,400 rubles at the time. Don't ask us what that is in euros. No, I don't even know how... Converts today, to be honest with you, I'd have to look that up. But the IS-2s were produced between 1943 and 1945, and they built 3,854 of them. You know, for the numbers of that, for being a heavy tank, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I will agree, especially with just that two-year period. I mean, almost 4,000 tanks. Mm -hmm. Now, when we go over the specifications, um, I know they modified it later on. In fact, they used the IS-2 later on. Give us the specifications for the IS-2, but do the model 1944, you know, when it first came out. Okay, all right. Yeah, the mass of the tank was about 46 tons. The length, 9.90 meters, or 32 feet 6 inches. The width of the tank was 3.09 meters, or 10 foot 2 inches wide. Uh, the height was 2.73 meters, or 8 foot 11 inches high. It had a crew of four. The whole front armor was 100 millimeters at about a 60 degree angle. The lower glacis armor was 100 millimeters at 30 degree angle. And the turret front was 100 millimeters also, and it was actually rounded. Now, 
if you're wondering why we're adding the angles, it's a mathematics. If you angle your armor, instead of having it straight up and down, if you will angle it, it actually increases the thickness of the armor. I know that's hard to explain, but if you're really interested on how angling armor is, uh, you can Google that. Um, there's some really good stuff. And the turret front being rounded, there was no place for it to actually flatten out and go through. What kind of mantle armor did it have? Yeah, the mantlet, it had 155 millimeter rounded armor on it too. Uh, the whole sides had 90 to 130 millimeter armor at 9 to 25 degrees angle. And the turret side was 90 millimeters thick at about 20 degree angle. Quite a bit of angled armor and rounded armor. When, like you explained a while ago, I mean, that helps quite a bit. So why we're saying the IS-2, given some reasons that it was the best tank of the Eastern Front. Lightning? Whoa, watch <laughs> out there, kitty cat. All right, lightning just fell off the table. Oh, she's been uh, having a hard time jumping up here for some reason today. I knew I shouldn't have gave her that cat now. I know. But get back to what we were saying. One of the reasons is, number one right here, the armor it's bouncing 88s. Let's get into the gun. The main armament of the IS-2 was the D25-T 122mm gun. It carried about 28 rounds inside the tank, and it had a faster loading drop breech and a new fire control system on this particular model of the IS-2. Now, we're going to talk about this later. That gun that we just described, the 122mm was almost a naval gun and they loaded it like a naval it was actually you know you'd shove in the round and throw in the uh, powder pack behind it and so they had to increase the speed and uh so they put in the fast loading drop breach and a new fire control what kind of secondary armament did it have it had one d shk it also had three dts and they carried about 2,000 rounds of ammunition for those so basically, machine four, guns. four machine guns. Yeah, four machine guns. With about 2,000 rounds. Yeah, that would keep your head down. It would. Well, what kind of engines are we talking about? I mean, we're talking maybe a fairly heavy tank. Yeah, 46 tons. It'd take yeah. a little bit to haul that sucker around. Uh, the engine was a 12-cylinder diesel Model V-2, which had about 600 horsepowers of power under it. So a 12-cylinder was 600. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. able to pull it. So what's the power-to-weight ratio on those? It had about 13 horsepowers per ton. That's not bad. Not bad. The suspension on the IS-2 was a torsion bar, and it had a fuel capacity of 820 liters, or 220 U.S. gallons. So what's that make the operational range? Operational range was right at 240 kilometers, or about 150 miles. It can go. It, you know, it, it can go to 150 miles. It carries a naval gun and it'll bounce an 88. What kind of speed? Hey, this sucker would get up to about 37 kilometers per hour or 23 miles per hour. So it, here it is with this 122 with a fast loading breech, fire control. And let's face it, when you hit a tiger with a gun like that, it's done. So uh, that, that's the second reason, you know. The first reason was the armor will bounce in 88 the second it'll one shot a tiger too hey nothing wrong with that so 
what was the high explosive HE ammo on a 122 millimeter gun like, Russ? The large 122 millimeter HE shell was its main asset, proving highly useful and destructive as an infantry killer. In extremes, the IS-2 engaged enemy heavy armor with OF-471 high-explosive projectiles. These shells had a mass of about 25 kilograms or 55 pounds. Whoa. A muzzle velocity of 800 meters per second or 2,600 feet per second. Wow. And were equipped with a 3.8 kilogram or 8.4 pound TNT charge. So they're using eight pounds of TNT to shove this thing out of the barrel, weighing 55 pounds, going 260 feet. Oh, tell me more. The explosive power could blow off an enemy tank turret, drive sprocket, and tread of the heaviest German tank, even if it could not penetrate the armor. Mechanical shock and explosion was often enough to knock out enemy heavy tanks. So here's the Germans with their best and heaviest. Uh, the King Tigers, the Jag Tigers, with these 88s. And they're bouncing off these things, but they're shooting, just playing HE and hitting them so hard and causing such a shock that it just shatters these tanks. Uh, Russ, we heard about the HE, so what's the AP round like? Say against super German heavy Tigers like the Tiger II or Jag Tiger. According to Wallproof 1 report, testing with captured Tiger Ossifrung Bees in Kabinka showed that the 122mm D-25T was capable of penetrating the Tiger Ostrom Bees turret from 1,000 to 1,500 meters, or 1,100 to 1,600 yards away. And the weld joint or edges of the front hole plates at ranges of 500 to 600 meters, or 550 to 660 yards away. This is why I want to bring our podcast out to the people. You know, most people say, oh, nothing can penetrate the Tiger II. But right here, from 15 or 1,600 yards, like you said, 1,500 meters, it didn't have any problem penetrating the turret. And then if they got close, it'd shoot right through the front holes at ranges of you know, 600 meters or 660 yards. And when they, you know, this is an assault tank when in the city, good Lord, it's going right through the well joints. Uh, so the Tiger armor couldn't hold up, uh, and the German 88s bounced off it. Let's go ahead and count that as, you know, a reason, too. Reason number three. Well, okay, Russ, let's get into the combat history of the IS-2. The IS-2 tank first saw combat in early 1944, equipping elite guards, heavy tank regiments of the Red Army. A regiment had 21 IS-2 tanks in four companies of five tanks each, and one being used by the regimental commander. The special tank regiments were reserved for important attacks, often to spearhead attempts to break through fortified German positions like anti-tank defense lines and bunkers. So basically what you're saying, uh, at this point in the war, um, they had the T-34-85s, and they had the plain T-34s, and some KVs. When those tanks you know, hit something solid, you know, a real entrenchment or they ran into these, you know, King Tigers and stuff like that. They called up these heavy elite Soviet tankers and they just rolled right up to them and blew them away. The tanks supporting infantry in the assault by destroying bunkers, buildings, dug in weapons and engaging German armored vehicles. Once a breakthrough was achieved, 
Lighter and more mobile tanks were used for exploitation and mopping up. So they were out doing the reconnaissance, uh, you know, and moving forward. And they ran into, you know, like a bunker or something like that with an 88 in it. They would just roll up there and and annihilate it. And they're like, okay, you you guys can go now. (laughs) The IS-2 tank first saw action in Ukraine in early 1944 and destroyed more than 40 tigers and elephants for the loss of only eight tanks. German heavy tanks could not knock out the IS-2s. They had no real answer to its 122mm gun, which easily outgunned them, and the IS-2's frontal armor. You said it killed 40 tigers and elephants. Let's just discuss the elephant, and let's do the... Let's talk about the recent uh, return of the USA uh, elephant from Bovington and why it's not on public display in, here in the United States. And if you guys aren't familiar, the United States military has a uh, elephant um, tank destroyer. It's a German tank destroyer. And we sent it over to Bovington, and uh, Bovington just showed it off, and you know people loved it. But we had, we had to get it back because it's ours. And... Uh, But why is it not on public display here in Russ? I'm going to use the words of Rob Kogan, which is currently the curator at the Armor and Cavalry Collection at Fort Benning, Georgia. And this comes from a post he posted to a group on Facebook on March 1st of this year, 2019. And I think he pretty much put put it the best, and that's the reason I want to use his words here on why... The elephant is not on public display. According to Rob, when the Army's historical collections were created, they came from two distinct origins. They either were originally established by units or posts using their own funds, or they were collections, like Fort Knox or Aberdeen Proving Grounds, that were created in order to train soldiers on past technologies, branch history, and esprit de corps. Uh, these programs were all later consolidated into the Army Museum program it is today. Regardless of what most people think, their primary mission today remains as such. They have only been open to the public due to the support by units, posts, schools, and foundations. Uh, Rob goes on to say that the ordnance collection is closed to the public, not because the ordnance collection wants it closed, but because Congress, the United States Congress, or your elected officials, and believe it or not, it's on both sides of the aisle, have deemed so. When Congress decided on the last base realignment and closure, they decided that the Army is not in the business of building museums. Thus, the only way the collections could reestablish themselves was with the support of units, posts, schools, and foundations. However, this was in the middle of massive military cuts with Iraq and Afghanistan still going on, and there was absolutely no funding available in any of the Army organizational funds. Foundations have tried to raise money, but there are too many competing fundraising efforts. Later, leaders in the Army were wise enough to emphasize that the collections are kept by regulation for educational purposes. Uh, They were able to get Congress to fund the building of facilities for this purpose, but the catch was Congress mandated that the facilities are only for training. This was extremely hard for the museums to accept, but if it meant the artifacts would actually have a climate control facility to protect them, then the hope stays alive they'll be available for public viewing later down the road when Congress changes its mind. This is the same restriction that has been placed on every training support facility, and that also includes the armor collection at Fort Benning. 
uh, Rob has been able to host several open houses for part of the collection uh, because those vehicles were in a building under the control of the armor school who graciously provided it to them. Uh, however, you would not believe the amount of pushback they've received from it um, from certain bureaucrats. This caused Rob to cancel one of the open houses at one point until he could cross some legalities. Rob also had tremendous support from the armor school, and I'm sure that helps a lot. And in that respect, he's lucky not all the collections have the needed support to actually open and open it up to open houses. The museum staff knows that their collections are national treasures, and they truly want to share those with the public. They know that sharing those treasures actually helps them close the divide between the public and the military. Here's what I want to point out. You know, your first thing is like, oh, God, Congress is in there and the bureaucrats, and, you know, they can't ever get anything done. This is why me and Russ travel so much, and we go to see these people, and we try to get people interested, and that's why we're really into this podcast because we want people to understand that these are national treasures. And these are things, once they're gone, they will never be back. Uh, we've already lost so many of these national treasures. You need to get involved. And when we say get involved, sure, you know, most people sit at the internet and click, click, click. Say, oh, yeah, I know everything about tanks now. But to really get involved, like, um, like our friend Craig Moore, uh, Sophie Lynn, um, the Twitch star... Um, people like Rob, uh, and just tons of like other supporters and like us, we were wanting you to, you know, reach out and contact these people. Don't be hateful, but say, Hey, this is important. I'm a taxpayer or, you know, I'm, you know, a supporter of the U S military or if we want to keep the collections open to the public and you live in the United States of America, or even if you don't live in the United States of America, you can find your elected officials' contact information online, get a hold of them, let them know how important it is to keep these actually open to the public. I mean, and, and pretty much that's, that's all the further I'm going to go into it. But get a hold of your elected officials. Tell them it's important that you want these museums open back up on, on these bases and, and get, the, get it to where we can go in and, and look at what our tax money here in the United States has actually bought. And these national treasures, you know, even the officials, elected officials that we've reached out to, they're like, what are you talking about? Do we have tanks? Most people, once they find out the history and that it's when you start saying national treasures and they're not being taken care of or they're not being displayed properly, you know, here's Rob having to, you know, say, oh, well. Uh, these are training, you know, for soldiers and it's still great training for them. You know, if you tell these officials, they, they remember it. They can remember a tiger tank. They can remember, uh, you know, especially if you, you know, get them to go out there and look at it, then they're like, yeah, yeah, we got to save this. So definitely get a hold of your elected officials. Even if you're like, oh, well, you know, what's my congressman in, you know, Idaho going to do? He could probably tell some other people that, you know, or he might be on the board to, you know, the, they could approve that. It only takes a few people to change it, and we need your help. Yes, we do. Okay, Russ. Um, sorry we got off on that, but it's important to us. What other battles did this monster get into? On the morning of August 11th, 1944, the 16th Panzer Division attacked the 53rd Guards Tank Brigade 
reinforced by the 71st Guard Independent Guards Heavy Tank Regiment in the town of Ogledow uh, towards Stadzau. Uh, the extremely sandy terrain forced the 11 King Tigers to keep to the roads, whilst the defending Soviet forces positioned their IS-2 tanks in ambush positions and concentrated on the known German avenues of approach. So wait a minute. The IS-2 is a heavy tank, but it's still lighter than the big King Tigers, and because of the tracks and stuff, it can get out in, in the mud and the sand and stuff like this. And you're saying the Tigers had to stay on the road or they'd just sink? Yeah, sink right into the sand. Reason number four. There you go. <laughs> the IS-2 could go where the Tigers couldn't. When the attack started, three King Tigers were destroyed by fire from Soviet IS-2 tanks. One King Tiger was killed by a T-34-76 at a range of less than 400 meters. How would you like to be that oh, guy? Oh, I know. You know what? You can make fun of these Soviet guys all you want, but for the commander of that tank to come up in the middle of a firefight and get within 400 meters just so he knows he can kill it with its T-34-76... This isn't the T-3485. This is the yeah. 76 one. What a stud. What more can I say? Yeah. Soviet forces counterattacked and seized the town of Ogledow and found three abandoned King Tigers that had broken down. You know, people say that we always make fun of uh, German tanks. And believe me, we love it. If you look at my Facebook page, I've got me standing in front of a great big King Tiger that was down in Fort Benning. I love the King Tiger. In uh, World of Tanks, I, that's one of my most played tanks. But they broke down. And here, these Soviet forces counterattacked. And here's three King Tigers just sitting there, broke down. Just like, oh, well, we can't use them. Let's go, let's go ahead and just leave all them here. The, all done, yep. The capture of the three operational King Tigers allowed the Soviets to conduct tests at Kabinka and to evaluate its strengths and weaknesses, which led to the Wapruf 1 report. So we were, that's the report you were talking about earlier in the broadcast. Yes, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they tested the heck out of these operational King Tigers and found out a lot of information about them, I would imagine. Talking about the penetrations that you were talking about, these three King Tigers, these are the ones that they you know, were at range going through the turret and proven that this gun was great. Over the next two days, the IS-2s advanced on Stasnow, and in several counterattacks, Heavy Tank Battalion 501 lost seven more King Tigers. Virtually all of these were destroyed by Soviet tanks, occupying a defensive position against those German tanks. In three days of fighting, Soviet forces destroyed or captured 14 of 30 Tiger Twos. In three days of fighting, they've killed how many of these King Tigers? They killed 14 of 30. Wow. And then they had to retreat. So the King Tigers even attacked with their frontal armor forward charging, but these dug in IS-2s, they just died. You know, the, these IS-2s were just killing them. Like I said, we're not making fun of the Germans. Please remember the 16th Panzer was a Wehrmacht, not a Nazi SS troops. These were just regular Germans that believed they were fighting for their homeland and trying to stay alive. Yeah, the German general uh, Dietrich von Mueller uh, was commanding this 16th Panzer and was getting sent to hotspots to save German units. So they knew what they were doing. These guys weren't rookies. 
uh, the 16th had actually pushed in the beginning uh, all the way to Stalingrad. But the IS-2 was pretty easy for the Soviet, and I don't like to use this word, peasants, to drive and be successful. The IS-2, you know, didn't they didn't have to worry about getting stuck in the mud. They didn't have to worry about getting stuck in loose sand. It's a fairly easy tank to drive. I'm not calling the Soviets peasants or anything, but a lot of them were farm-based guys that had no experience even driving a car. And they just get in these and take off because their training with these are very short. You know, there's reason number five right there, I believe. Okay, Russ, uh, the combat history is getting good. Please go on. Yeah, sure. Let's talk about the battle for Berlin now. Wait, the Battle of Berlin? Yeah, the Battle of Berlin, yeah. On April 20th, 1945, Hitler's birthday, Marshal Avon Konev's 1st Ukrainian Front broke through Army Group Center and advanced towards the southern suburbs of Berlin. Happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday to you. We got good news and bad news. Good news, (laughs) it's the cake that you wanted. The bad news, the Soviets are coming, the Soviets are coming. General Helmuth Weidling assumed command of the forces within Berlin. Fortress Berlin consisted of several Wehrmark and Waffen-SS divisions, along with trained Volkstern and Hitler youth members. So, basically, this welding is like, oh, here comes the Soviets. We gotta, you know, pull everything together and get ready to, you know, try and stop them. So, they get their uh, Wehrmark. Uh, which are, you know, just the regular uh, soldiers, and they get their Waffen-SS, which is divisions, which is supposed to be their elite, and these are the hardcore Nazi guys. But they're also, um, along with trained Volkstrom. Now, if people don't know what Volkstrom is, it's kind of like a home guard. Um, These are older guys. Uh, You'll see in movies and stuff that at the end, uh, Hitler was using old men and kids. Well, this is where it comes in. But these Volkstrom were a lot of World War I veterans and uh, the Hitler youth. You know, I, I'm going to go ahead and leave that alone. I mean, you understand what happens when you give a 12-year-old kid a bazooka. While Felix Martin Julius Steiner, a German SS commander, was placed in command of Army Detachment Steiner, while Adolf Hitler ordered Steiner to envelop the first Belarusian front through a pincher movement, advancing for the... Advancing from the north of the city, Steiner's forces consisted of 3rd Germanic SS Panzer Corps, 4th SS Polzai Division, which is basically a police division, uh, the 5th Jäger Division, 25th Panzer Grenadier Division, and three divisions of the 9th Army CI Army Corps, and should have been given command of uh, the... LV-1, Panzer Corps, and the 2nd Naval Infantry Division. So, basically, uh, at this point, Hitler's trying to build an army. The Army Group Center is, you know, been pretty much smashed. And if you don't know about Steiner, and, and of course, everybody knows Steiner, the memes from uh, the movie Downfall. We'll get into that. Um, Steiner was actually a pretty good general, um, but he didn't like sacrificing his troops, and he knew what he could do. They gave him these divisions that we just went through, you know, like this uh, third Germanic SS uh, Panzer Corps, the fourth SS Police Division. You're thinking he's getting these 
divisions, even the 9th Army's CI uh, Army Corps. But these are shattered divisions. These are broke-up divisions. He's trying to pull all these people together, and he doesn't have time. There was a couple other, uh, you know, he should have been given command of, which is the LVI uh, Panzer Corps and the 2nd Naval Infantry Division. When this battle started, you know, they kind of took two of his other Panzer Divisions. Steiner really didn't have, I mean, on paper, this sounds really good, but there was nobody there, and some of these guys didn't even have guns. And you're like, uh, well, what about these uh, Panzer Divisions? Well, they didn't have any tanks. In fact, uh, Steiner being the general he was, he actually found the Panzer Threes that we're going to talk about in a future episode. Uh, I think he dug up like 82 of these Panzer threes, and they immediately took him from him. So he's like, eh, okay, you know, you're you're taking all this stuff, and you're taking some of my best divisions and stuff like that. I'm not going to be able to do anything until you give me time to rearm them, bring in people to put in there, new soldiers and everything. Steiner's in an impossible situation. Hitler's thought was that he speculated that General Walter Wink's Seventh Army which was facing the Americans, could move to Berlin because the Americans, already on the Elbe River, were unlikely to move further east. This assumption was based on his viewing of the captured Eclipse documents, which organized the partition of Germany among the Allies. Hitler immediately grasped the idea, and within hours, Wink was ordered to disengage from the Americans and move the 7th Army northeast to support Steiner's pincher attack. And we're talking about this uh, Eclipse uh, documents. If you're unfamiliar with this, it's a good time for you to stop, pull it up on Google. Basically, Churchill, uh, Stalin, and uh, Roosevelt had sat down and worked out after the defeat of Germany what was going to happen. You know, when he got his hands on that, he found out that the you know, the Russians were like, hey, hey, we get Berlin. We're going into Berlin. So the Americans was like, okay, we're going to go as far as the Elbe River. And, of course, the British were, you know, in their stop points. So Hitler was like, I don't need the 7th Army to sit there and look at the, you know, the Americans. They're not going to fire. They're not going to do anything. So let's pull them and do a pincer tank with Steiner's army. But, again, Steiner didn't have an army Adolf Hitler went into a fit of happy hysteria when the news of President Roosevelt's death reached him in his underground chamber of the Chancellery in Berlin at midnight on April the 12th. So Hitler, he, like we said, knows about an eclipse, and then Roosevelt dies. And now he knows that the Western Allies are going to be stuck in a power vacuum, unable to attack. He thinks... Steiner made it clear that he did not have the capacity for a counterattack on April 22nd uh, during the morning daily situation conference in the Fuhrer bunker. And later on April 22nd at his afternoon conference, Hitler became told that Steiner was not going to attack. He fell into a tearful rage against his generals. He declared that the war was lost, blamed the generals, and announced that he would stay in Berlin until the end and then kill himself. So Steiner was unable to attack. I mean, he didn't have the forces. On paper, 
you know, people are like, oh, Steiner was a coward. He didn't attack. He didn't, some of his units didn't even have rifles. And he's like, I, I can't attack. And he's like, well, no, I ordered you to attack. And he goes, well, with what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to sacrifice my men, you know, just to, charge down, you know, bullets or be bullet stops. Everybody talks about the Fuhrer bunker and, and, and when uh, Hitler went into this rage. If you've never seen the movie Downfall, it's a great movie. Uh, I suggest that you see it. Uh, it's about the, uh, basically about the Battle of Berlin and the things that happened and led up to Hitler actually shooting himself and what happened afterwards. It, they stayed pretty close to historical facts. And some of the, where he's talking to his German generals and stuff like that, they actually put down the maps and show the placements of where everything is. This movie also created a lot of memes. If you go to YouTube, it's like Hitler rants. And, and there's some really ones uh, that I think one of the funniest ones that I showed Russ and Russ was just rolling is when he, uh, Hitler rants about going to Taco Bell. <laughs> <laughs> and it, you're going to have to just go YouTube and uh, just uh, put in there uh, Hitler rants uh, Taco Bell. It's pretty funny stuff. The meme is actually supposed to be funny, but in the movie, this is what breaks Hitler. You know, he's like, I ordered Steiner to make the attack. And, you know, the German generals, now remember, he Steiner called in the morning and tried to get a hold of Hitler and say, I can't attack, sir. I don't have the... I don't have any soldiers. I, I don't have any guns. I don't have any ammunition. I, I can't attack. It'll be suicide, and I'm not going to make these guys, you know, commit suicide. But they wouldn't let him talk to Hitler. So they told his generals and, you know, his upper command, and they go in there and tell him, you know, before they tell him, they're like, okay, here's what the Russians are doing and everything. He goes, don't worry about it. He says, everything's going to be fine. I'm going to have the 7th Army, you know, do the pincer, shove the Soviets back. And then I'm going to have Steiner do the other side of the pincer, and he'll with Steiner's attack, it'll clean up everything, and everything will stabilize. And then they're like, uh, "Sir, Steiner couldn't make uh, an attack," and that's when he flips out. Yeah, you know, that's when he knew in his head it was all over. It's over. But he wouldn't surrender. I, w I wish he would have saved you know tons of lives. That's true. Okay, Rush, finish up the battle for Berlin. On April 27, 1945, as Allied forces closed in on Milan, Italian dictator. dictator Benito Mussolini tried to flee from Italy to Switzerland through the Splugian Pass. He was traveling with a German and aircraft battalion and was captured by Italian partisans. On April 28, Mussolini was executed and the Fuhrer bunker was informed. M Mussolini is trying to get out, get into Switzerland, because uh, basically, the, you know, Allied forces are coming up and closing on uh, Milan, and he tries to flee, and uh, Hitler's high command is saying, okay, we've got a German anti-aircraft anti battalion down there, we're going to get you out, and we're going to get you back, you know, into Switzerland, and we'll bring you in here into Germany. And they didn't make it. The The partisans got him and stopped him and executed him in the early hours of april 29th the soviet third shock army crossed the Moltke bridge and started to fan out into the surrounding streets and buildings the initial assaults on buildings including the ministry of the interior were hampered by the lack of supporting artillery it was not 
until the damaged bridges were repaired that the artillery could move, be moved up in support. At 0400 hours in the Fuhrer bunker, Hitler signed his last will and testament and shortly afterwards married Eva Braun. At dawn, the Soviets pressed on with their assault in the southeast. After very heavy fighting, they managed to capture Gestapo headquarters. So this is where the IS-2 tank is in basically the hell of battle. These troops, these infantry are like, hey, these Germans are dug in, they're in basements, they're in rubble, uh, there's uh, Tiger tanks still in there, uh, there's 88s, they, they've made bunkers basically on every building and every street. So these IS-2s are having to go in and dig all these people out uh, and lead the attack until they run out of ammo and they have to reverse because they don't have any artillery support because they can't get the artillery there because the bridges are still you know, pretty much damaged and stuff like that. So they're in there and these Hitler youth are popping out with Panzer Faust, you know, or basically German bazookas. And, and of course the Volkstrom, which is the old guys are sitting there with machine guns and stuff, but they're also have a bunch of, uh, other SS and Wehrmacht regular soldiers that are in there and kind of helping them figure out where to dig in and where to shoot. What a lot of people don't know is that um, there was a French SS division, the Charlemagne. Now, these were French uh, SS that knew that they couldn't go home. They knew they were in a world of troubles. So these are the guys that were like going to fight to the very end. By the next day, April 30th, the Soviets had solved their bridging problems. And with artillery support at 0600, they launched an attack on the Reichstag. But because of German entrenchments and support from 12.8 centimeter guns, uh, about two kilometers away on the roof of the Zuflak Tower in Berlin Zoo, it was not until that evening that the Soviets were able to enter the building. Now, if you don't know about the Reichstag, um, uh, the Reichstag is where uh, you'll see the pictures of the Soviets planting the flag in Berlin. Uh, he's, he's, it shows a soldier with his arm out and it's holding the Soviet flag at the Reichstag. And, uh, what people don't know, and I'm not trying to throw any dirt on anybody that they actually had to photo, uh, doc or, you know, Photoshop back there in the 1945s, that soldier putting it out, because if you look at his wrist, he's got two watches on. So they were actually looting quite a bit. If you want to hear about some of the tragedies that did go on, a lot of people know that there was some looting and, and sexual assaults and uh, a lot of other crimes that happened. Uh, basically, the Soviets were thinking payback. And uh, this is where the story is. You know, you saw Soviet soldiers uh, that were peasants uh, running around the streets with uh, German toilets because they thought they were potato washers. And I have a hard time believing that. But, you know, this is where all this story came from. But that's something you should research on your own. We, we really don't want to get into that uh, political debate right there. The Reichstag had not been in use since it had burned in February of 1933, and its interior resembled a rubble heap more than a government building. The German troops inside made excellent use of this and were heavily entrenched. Fierce room-to-room fighting ensued. At that point, there was still a large contingent of German soldiers in the basement 
who launched counterattacks against the Red Army. So these, you know, here's this, you know, concrete stone building, and these guys are down in the basement, you know, trying to hide from the artillery. But when the Soviet troops are coming up, they jump out and they counterattack. The IS-2 is sitting there firing these high explosive rounds in there trying to wipe these guys out. Man, talk about room-to-room fighting. Exactly. It had, to be a bl- it had to be a bloodbath. The Germans still wasn't wanting to give up. Very darn easy. On May 2nd, 1945, the Red Army controlled the building entirely. The famous photo of the two soldiers planting the flag on the roof of the building is a reenactment photo taken the day after the building was taken. To the Soviets, the event, as represented by the photo, becomes symbolic of their victory, demonstrating that the Battle of Berlin, as well as the Eastern Front hostilities as a whole, ended with the total Soviet victory. Now, they took that, but it was a burned-out building, and it really hadn't been used. But the German people knew that building. It would be like them planting, or like an enemy planting a flag on the White House, the, the Capitol building. Yeah, this was the big government thing that... Their government building. Right. Yes. Even though it wasn't in use, that's the symbol that, that it had. But go ahead, Russ. As the 756th Regiment Commander's Zinchenko had stated in his order to Battalion Commander Neustreff, the Supreme High Command, and the entire Soviet people order you to erect the victory banner on the roof above Berlin. So basically, the, the generals or the commanders are saying, hey, you're going to put our flag up there to let everybody know that we've won this. During the early hours of April 30th, Wilding informed Hitler in person that the defenders would probably exhaust their ammunition during the night. Hitler gave him the permission to attempt a breakout through the encircling Red Army lines. Well, I hate to cut in. Wilding goes in, he's a German general, and he tells Hitler, hey, listen, we fought hard. Um, we're there, the Soviets are coming. Our ammunition's at the end. We've shot everything we've got. They're going to they're gonna be here. So Hitler's like, okay, you guys fought to the last. I'm going to give a permission to b- make a breakout, try to save some people. I think his, even Hitler's secretaries uh, went with these people trying to get to the American side. Um, I, I really don't want to discuss why... I mean, people probably know why the Germans didn't want to surrender to the Soviets and they thought they could maybe get a better deal with the British and Canadian and allied forces in the United States. Were the Soviets mad? Yeah, yeah. You know, they're like, oh, you know, the Soviets were just terrible. And so I'm like, yeah, they lost tons of stuff. And they've been they've been fighting fighting this out for how many years before the United States and the other allies even got involved? Right. And if you look at the percentages, and I'm not trying to throw any dirt on any of our allies or anything, out of the 100% of the war, the Soviets fought 75%. We had to handle 25% of the German stuff. Yeah, we had some great, you know, terrible battles, and we had some great victories. But these Soviets had to go all the way from Stalingrad and push these guys all the way back to Berlin. And now they're in Berlin. 
That afternoon, Hitler and Braun committed suicide and their bodies were cremated not far from the bunker. Germany would surrender May 9, 1945, although Americans celebrate VE Day on the 8th. And that's so weird. You know, they surrendered on the 9th, and that's when, you know, basically uh, the Soviets celebrate that. But, you know, ours it was May 8th. We always kind of get our holidays mixed up wrong, <laughs> don't we? I think so, yeah. Uh, I'd have to go back and research that on whether it was a mistake or if it was on purpose. I don't know. I wanted to talk about after the defeat of Germany, like we said in the M4 episode, uh, these IS-2 tanks were loaded up on rail cars and their crews, and they sent them all the way over to Manchuria. Well, I'm going to try to talk Russell into putting a really hard-to-find hard archive papers. It's called the Leavenworth Papers, I believe. Isn't that correct? Yes, that's what they are. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of people have came to us and say, well, where do you get your research? And, and what, do you, what, what are you talking about archives? Uh, we'll put a link to this uh, uh, Leavenworth Papers, and it will basically tell you uh, basically what the Soviets did in Manchuria, and it'll talk about the IS-2s and how they just destroyed Japanese fortified positions. Yeah, we'll put that in there, and that way you can research this. Uh, but I'll, again, we apologize running long, but these get so interesting to us. I guess let's just go ahead and wrap up, Russ. Yeah, I'm telling you right now, we can we can talk tanks forever. So as always, you can always contact us through our email address at twotankersandcat at gmail.com. Facebook, it's still out there. It's growing every day. We it still, really is. Yes, it is. We keep getting more and more likes on the page. And all you have to do there to find us on Facebook is search for Two Tankers and Cat Podcast. And that'll pop right up there on the page in front of you. And our website, www.twotankersandcat.com. All of the links to all of our places that our podcast can be found can be located on our website, uh, including the PayPal donate button and all that good stuff. And... Don't forget, we mentioned it at the beginning of this podcast, that we are new on Patreon. Uh, You can go to Patreon and search for Two Tankers and Cat, or go to www.patreon.com backslash Two Tankers and Cat, and that'll get you to our Patreon page. And, of course, you can always call us and leave us a voicemail at 785-380-9844. We'll uh, get your comments, and we'll use them on our next podcast. Yes. So, great episode, Russ. Um, Until next time, uh, people, this is Charlie. And this is Russell. And as always, happy tanking, and have a great day. 